0: Well, hey guys, again, thanks for being here for Open Mic. Now, for some of you who may not know yet, maybe you haven't uh, caught the last couple of these, but Open Mic used to be a weekend show that we would do on the YouTube channel, but we have converted it over to be exclusively here on the podcast feed. And by the way, all of the great topics and questions that are submitted for today's show come to us from our Patreon supporters. So a big shout out and thank you to all of you Patreon supporters who sent in topics for us to talk about here today. So listen, we do have a bunch of things to get to, so let's not waste any time and get right to it. We're going to start things off here with Ben Donnelly, who writes... I've been using Disney Plus to rewatch some movies I loved as a kid: Toy Story 2, The Emperor's New Groove, Wall-E, the Eddie Murphy Dr. Dolittle movies, Treasure Planet, even Ice Age. Thanks to the Fox acquisition. What about you, John? Are there any movies you uh, are there any movies there that tickle your nostalgia? Well, thanks a lot for that, Ben. And really, that's kind of been the main reason, right? That Disney Plus has been a success. I mean, Disney+, Plus. we talked about this recently on the show, has now acquired 73 million subscribers in just one year. Put that in context. Netflix has about triple, only about three times that many number of subscribers, and they've been around for a decade or more, right? They've been around forever. And so Disney comes out swinging 73 million subscribers, and it ain't because of... Be our guest. It isn't because of shop class. It isn't because of a lot of these low budget kind of filler shows that they have. And it's not even because of their premium stuff. It's not because of Hamilton. And it's not even because of Mandalorian, as much as I love Mandalorian. But they've only put out two pieces of what I would call premium original content in an entire year. What has been their backbone has been that incredible library they have, right? That That's what it is. And yes, there are definitely a lot of movies on that list that I could pop in and watch absolutely anytime, no doubt about it, especially once that Fox acquisition content is in there as well, Ben. So, oh, absolutely. And it's all about that library. All right, Brandon Hulspus writes, I hope I'm pronouncing your name, Brandon, right? All right, Brandon writes, I know 2020 sucks. Indeed, it does, my friend. But in a world where Jamie Foxx is Electro, Ben Affleck is back as Batman, and Peacocktober is real, anything is possible. It's true. I mean, seriously, I joke about it a lot on the show, on the John Campus show, about, listen, we live in a world where Jamie Foxx is coming back as Electro and Ben Affleck is back as Batman. But all kidding aside, those two things kind of represent the whole Absolutely anything, no matter how preposterous, no matter how ridiculous and no matter how unlikely or maybe even unwise, no matter how much any of those things may be true, anything is truly possible because of those two things, Brandon. All right. Angel Martinez writes, John. Have you seen the Vietnam War movie Hamburger Hill? Yeah, that, that movie's like thirty years old. Uh, I watched it with my dad when I was ten. It's got Don Cheadle in, if I remember. I watched it with my dad when I was ten, and uh, and that was the movie that made me obsessed with movies and war history in general. It has a great young cast. Definitely recommend a watch. Yeah, I'm I now. Admittedly, I probably haven't watched Hamburger Hill. <clears throat> probably in about oh gosh, I'd say at least twenty years since I've seen Hamburger Hill. I mean, it's been it's been a long, long time. Uh, I believe Dylan McDermott was in that as well. It kind of you know it it comes from an era when there were a number of like big, higher profile Vietnam uh, movies that come out. You know, with Oliver Stone and others. But Hamburger Hill is probably one that gets overlooked a lot. And again, I can't sit here and really speak to it because it's been at least twenty years since I've seen it. But I remember liking it uh, as a good one. I remember liking it as a good one. Well, that's a good deep cut there, Angel. Thanks for putting that one in there. All right, next up. Uh, Dacian uh, uh, Preden Hallibrand writes, Hey, John, have you seen the anime Your Name? No, I have not. But I, I'm very aware of it. I'm <laughs> I'm very, very aware of that film, but I've never watched it. Uh, Kimi no nawa. Uh, it is directed by uh, Makoto uh, Shinkai, and is one of the best animation or movies I've seen in the last years. Today, I watched Weathering With You uh, by the same director, and it is also fa- a fantastic achievement. I was wondering whether uh, Shinkai's work is known in the U.S., and what do you think about it? Thanks. No, his work really isn't known all that well in the U.S., outside of fans of the specific genre. But I know Your Name is is a film that gets that gets mentioned a lot, and I've watched the previews for it. And I I got to admit, the previews don't really let... I don't get what the movie is supposed to be, looking at the previews, to be completely honest with you. But I've heard it's wonderful. I've heard it's fantastic. And that I got to give it a shot. I'm actually kind of making my way through some anime right now. I'm watching uh, My Hero Academia right now. Not going to lie. I'm not loving it. So I just finished season one, and I don't know that I'll be watching season two. I, I kind of struggled getting through it. But... Um, But yeah, your name is definitely one that I've got to get on my list here pretty soon. All right. Next up, Ben Rayner writes, hey, John. I'm wondering if you saw that Netflix slash YouTube video, Father of the Bride Part 3-ish. It's a half hour. I guess you could call it a short movie. It brought back all the cast and some great new people. It was funny and it made me want them to make an actual Father of the Bride Part 3, and they could bring back all the main players. Just curious to hear your thoughts. I am. I saw, again, I saw that it was out there, and I don't know why I haven't watched it, because... I am not a huge Father of the Bride guy, but I like Father of the Bride and I love Steve Martin. So I don't know why I haven't bothered watching it. I mean, if it was a movie, I definitely would have watched it, but no, I haven't watched it yet. Uh, I know Anne is interested in watching it too. So at some point I am going to have to sit down. Probably Anne and I will both sit down and go over and watch that one. Because again, I I just absolutely adore Steve Martin. So I'll have to check that out. You're the first person actually, Ben, to write into me to say that they've actually watched it. So I don't, know if any, I don't know if anybody's watched it. I certainly, like I remember I saw it around when it was coming out. I have honestly never heard anybody talk about it though. Now, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but at some point I'm going to get around to watching it again just because I'm such a big uh, Steve Martin fan. All right, next up comes Derek Woodren who writes, Happy Saturday, John. Uh, do you think that the studio heads are discussing ideas with how to save the theaters, like releasing films in theaters, et cetera? Or do you think they're only conversing with their studio? I, I know for a fact that studio's heads have had conversations because you're talking about a tectonic, massive shift in, an, in a century-old industry, right? We're talking about a massive shift in a uh, century-old industry that leaves a lot of things as completely unknowns. Like, the studios themselves are heading into the great unknowns. Now, not every studio has their own big streaming platform like Warner Brothers does in HBO Max or Disney does with Disney Plus. And so all the studios will have their own different priorities and everybody's got their own plan. But I know for a fact that studios head heads have had conversations about you know sharing ideas and thoughts about you know what does like how does the disappearance of the movie theater industry affect us all right now what if anything could be done about it what should be done about it? should anything at all be done about it? like i know those conversations have happened but whether we'll see any sort of coordinated collective effort is questionable. Because like I said, each one of these studios has their own priorities right now. Like you've got Paramount, who's really trying to make theatrical work, and you got Disney that's reshifted their entire organization to prioritize direct-to-consumer streaming. So conversations have happened. Will anything come out of these conversations? I am dubious. I hope something does, but I'm dubious that something actually will. All right, next up. Brent Gilson writes, is best movie worst movie still scheduled to come back and is chris carr still coming back after the pandemic ends all right thanks for writing that in brent so for those who know what brent's asking about when he asks about best movie worst movie best movie worst movie is a podcast series that myself robert meyer burnett and olympic gold medalist cody miller uh, have done together and we do them in short seasons like anywhere between five to seven episodes and we've done two seasons of it we are going to do another one however a lot of things have gotten in the way lately. The main thing that has been getting in the way is obviously the pandemic and causing chaos for everybody. But uh, Cody and his awesome wife, Allie, they just had a baby, like literally days ago. They just had a baby. So them getting ready to have their baby has been one thing. Uh, Cody has been preparing for the Olympics for two years now. I mean, obviously it was supposed to be last summer. That got canceled, and now he's still prepping for the Olympics. So yeah, we will come back and do more Best Movie, Worst Movie. It's just a fun podcast for us to do. But I can't say right now when that'll be. They might be in two months. It might be in six months. It might not be for another year. So unfortunately, it's got to sit on the burner. But, you know, the three of us have talked. It will happen. We will bring it back. We are going to do a season three of it for sure. Um, It's just right now, we just don't know when. It's not our top priority at the moment, but it is coming back. Will Chris Carr come back after the pandemic? I don't know. I've always said for sure she is, but Ann and I just bought a house and it's not 100%. The deal isn't hundred percent closed yet, but it looks like it's going to be closed here in the next couple of weeks. We're going to close the deal. And that house is going to take us about an hour outside of Los Angeles. And Chris Carr, when she's on the show, she comes over because she doesn't have really a a good streaming setup from home. So I can't really, we've tested bringing her in in via streaming before, and it didn't work out so well. So I can't just have her come in remotely like I do with Robert Meyer Burnett, who's got a perfect streaming setup. So since, and I don't think she's going to want to drive an hour out to our new place to come and do the show. So I don't know. I'm going to have to have a conversation. I'll be honest with you, Chris Carr and I haven't talked about it yet. I haven't talked to Chris about uh, the fact that Anne and I have gotten a house and what's that going to mean whenever the pandemic's over. So I'm not 100% sure yet, but I'm not going to close the door on it because uh, who knows? We might be able to figure something out. I I know I would love to have Chris back because she's great, but we're just going to have to see whether the circumstances and the situation is going to allow it. All right. Next up is Josh Bing, who writes, do you still think they'll end up dropping Black Widow on Disney Plus? And if so, When do you suspect we'll get an announcement? Well, I mean, when we'll get an announcement is December 10th. We've been saying that this whole time. There is an investors remote meeting. By remote, I mean like virtually and over the phone. There's a big virtual uh, investors event, a shareholders event going on on December 10th. On that day, I believe they will make their announcement. Uh, They're going to announce about 101 Dalmatians being moved to streaming. They're going to announce Tom Hanks' Pinocchio movie is going to be moved to streaming. They're going to announce another film that I can't remember the name of it right now off the top of my head that's going to be moving. The question is, are they going to announce Black Widow is moving? I believe that they will. Now, I don't have any 100% confirmation of that. I cannot tell you for sure. But I believe that they are going to. Now, there is often, as I always say, there's often a difference between what we believe and what we know. But I believe that December 10th, they are going to announce uh, Black Widow being moved to uh, streaming. And so at least by December 10th, we'll know. But on December 10th, we will know if they are and we will know if they aren't. So uh, keep that date circle, December 10th on your calendar. All right, next up, Craig Wooten writes, Hi, John. I watched Hillbilly Elegy, which wasn't great. That's the new Ron Howard film, which wasn't great. But after watching it, I read a lot of reviews. And what I found was a fair amount, not all, had issues with the book's author and his politics. Do you think things outside of the film itself is fair game to put in reviews? All right. Thanks a lot for saying that. Um, Yeah, listen, I've read a bunch of the reviews, too. I will. and And I've listened to a bunch of them as well. I would say this. I ha- I never heard any critics say, I don't like this movie because outside of the movie, you know, the movie, the, the writer is this, this, and this. I never heard anybody say that. Is it fair to even bring up that stuff? Absolutely. With movies, any type of storytelling, context is everything, right? Context is absolutely everything. So the context of a movie it's absolutely fair for anybody breaking down, dissecting, evaluating, and reviewing a movie. It's absolutely fair to do so. You know, when when we're reviewing a Marty Scorsese movie, people will talk about Marty Scorsese. Now, it's usually all in big, glowing, wonderful terms, as is well-deserved, but that's part of it. You to understand the context of the film. When a writer or whatever's, you know, personal politics or beliefs are clearly seen within the movie, then that opens that up for a part of the discussion. Now, what I don't think is fair game is to say, like, you know, I disagree with Clint Eastwood's politics, okay? Well, I go and watch, you know, his new, he does Unforgiven 2, and I go watch him go, you know, I watched Unforgiven 2, but uh, I don't like Clint Eastwood's politics, so I don't like his movie because of that. That's not fair. That's not fair. That wouldn't be fair in the least. But... If he brings up certain topics in his movie and there is some connection between you know, what his personal beliefs are about certain things outside of the movie, well, then that becomes relevant to the discussion about the piece of art that he created, right? So on that level, it's fair. It's not fair to evaluate the movie based on whatever the filmmaker, the writer, the director, the producers, whatever – whatever their personal things are outside of the movie. But if it's germane to the conversation, it's absolutely within the scope and and should be discussed if it's relevant. So, So on the one hand, yes, it's fair, but no, it's not fair to give a evaluation of the film and a score to a film based on things you like or don't like about the filmmaker themselves outside of the movie, if that makes any sense. That's how I kind of feel about that. All right, thanks for sending that in, man. Next up, we've got Austin... Prusak writes, well, now that Thanksgiving has come and gone, Christmas is up. Do you have any movies you have to watch during the Christmas season? The Santa Claus with Tim Allen and Home Alone, Lost in New York are my musts. Thanks for all you do. Glad you're a nobody we can all count on. All right. Thanks a lot for that, Austin. And yeah, Christmas, there's a number of things, you know, that are kind of family traditions that we would watch around Christmas time. One of them is the original Wizard of Oz I I don't know why. I don't know what Wizard of Oz has to do with Christmas, to be honest with you. But at the Campia Ranch, every Christmas, at some point, the Wizard of Oz is on TV. So so that's kind of one. I would say the main one, though, is the 1951 Alistair Sim version of A Christmas Carol. I'd say that's probably um the one that probably is kind of a must like i got i got to watch that at least once every christmas i don't know why that particular one but that's kind of the one that i've got to go to every other time No, and i'll watch a bunch of other christmas movies during christmas time not die hard cuz once again die hard is absolutely not a christmas movie just ask bruce willis uh die hard is not a christmas movie but uh there's a lot of great christmas movies and i will certainly actually it's funny we just had the original Home Alone on TV the other night. As we were uh, getting ready to watch Mandalorian, the newest episode of The Mandalorian, we still had like two hours to kill until midnight hit when Mandalorian was going to go online on Disney Plus. So uh, we put on the original Home Alone for a little bit and watched a little bit of that. All right, thanks a lot for the question, Austin. Next up, Michael Rodriguez writes, "Hello, John. I just finished your documentary. Aw, thanks, man. I appreciate that." And I had a great time. Congrats! Keep up the great work, and uh, cannot wait for your next project. Have a great day. Well, thank you so much for that, Michael. And for those of you who who maybe you're you're not regulars around here, uh, what Michael is talking about is I just released this week uh, my new documentary movie trailers a love story and it's a, it's a little documentary project just looking at the history and formation and evolution of movie trailers and why they mean so much to us and this wonderfully romantic yet very complicated relationship that the movie trailers have with us as movie fans so um if uh, if you guys want to check it out please do it is available worldwide on vimeo.com slash on-demand slash movie trailers. That's vimeo.com slash on-demand slash movie trailers. And that's worldwide, any country in the world. If you happen to live in the U.S. or the U.K., though, you can also get it, if you wish, on Amazon. So just go on to Amazon and search for movie trailers, a love story, and you should find it there. And I will put the links in the description of this podcast. so You can just go find it there. So thank you so much, Michael, for giving me a reason to plug my damn movie. So thank you for that, and thanks for checking the movie out. I appreciate it, Michael. All right, next up, we've got Christian Rubiano, who writes... Hello, John. Hope you enjoyed Turkey Day. I did. I had a really good Thanksgiving. Thank you so much. What is it about Zack Snyder's directing style that elicits such a strong response, either positively or negatively, from audiences? I know all films are subjective, but not all directors garner such passionate responses every time out. Thank you. Well, look, it, it, that's a billion dollar question, and I think. I can only give you kind of what my own observations are about that, but everybody may have different answers. Here's my initial gut reaction to that is number one. I don't know that people are really divided on Zack Snyder as a filmmaker overall, all that much. John, what are you talking about? Have you not seen the divisive reviews of Batman V Superman or man of steel or what? Yeah, but but hear what I'm saying. I think overall as a filmmaker, Zack Snyder is really not all that divisive of a filmmaker. When you look outside of the DCEU, not every movie he's made is great, but every director has bad movies on their resume. Every every director does. Even Steven Spielberg. They all do. But generally speaking, prior to Man of Steel, prior to the DCEU, uh, people generally liked not, he wasn't one of the best, but he was generally liked as a filmmaker. I mean, who doesn't like 300, right? Or his zombie fair, or even his, like, even I, I keep talking about this one little animated film. A lot of people go, wait a minute, does Zack Snyder direct an anime film? Yeah, there's a Zack Snyder film that nobody ever talks about, and I really like it. It's called uh, Legends of the Guardians, The Owls of Ghoul. And it is a really nice little adventure animated film with these birds and owls flying around with great quote unquote cinematography. And it's, it's thrilling and it's, I really like it. It's, it's, I really quite like it. Now I really don't like his one film sucker punch. That's, that's the only film of Zack Snyder's that I can think of that I don't like is sucker punch. And it's got one of Ann's friends in it. And so I, you know, I'm biased to like it, but I simply don't like it. Unfortunately, so that's one thing. But again, outside of the MCU, I think before Man of Steel, people gen- generally kind of like Zack Snyder and his and his work. I think for the most part. It's not until you get into the DCEU stuff that the real division started to happen. And a part of the unfortunate thing about the divisive nature of Zack Snyder. Is something that was completely not his fault, which was Zach got wrapped up in the overall MCU corporate zombie fanboys versus the DCEU corporate zombie fanboys. And Snyder kind of became a lightning rod part of that whole debate where. I think a lot of people who are just the corporate zombie Marvel slaves were like, everything that is DC sucks. And, you know, Man of Steel was one of those. Man of Steel is an awesome movie. Like, you know me. I think it's the most underrated comic book film of all time. I think it's one of the best comic book films of all time. It gets better every time I see it. And there's a lot of people who just didn't like it because they didn't like it. That's fair. I have no complaints. But I also think there's a part of it that was, it's DC, therefore we're supposed to hate it because we're Marvel. Make mine Marvel. So I got to hate whatever is DC. And and Zack Snyder was caught up in that. At the same time, I think there were the, the corporate zombie fanboys who were slaves of the DC corporation. They were just blind corporate zombie slaves of D.C. And so they would do the opposite of what the blind corporate zombie slaves of the Marvel fanboys were doing, which is it's D.C. Therefore, it's awesome. It's awesome. Nothing's wrong with it. It's the best thing ever. And, and it didn't matter how good or bad it is. They were going to devout and pledge their undying loyalty to it and stand on that hill no matter what. Just like there were corporate zombie Marvel fanboys who are going to die on the hill of we hate this movie even before they ever saw it. Again, I'm not saying that's the general truth of the whole movie-going audience. I think, basically speaking, there were people who watched the movie like myself that just really liked it because we liked it. Then there were a bunch of people who just watched it and didn't like it because they didn't like it. But within all that, there is a segment of that, of these blind corporate zombie fanboy, uh, you know, just drones on the Marvel side and on the DC side that Zack Snyder's name became a part of that. That just became entrenched even more once Batman versus Superman came out. Now, look, I am a fan of that movie. I like that movie. I, I will tell you it's not perfect. It has its problems, but but I think overall, it's it's quite good. I, I quite enjoy the film, especially, you know, Ben Affleck's iteration of Batman in it. I thought the Batman that Snyder and Ben Affleck gave us in that movie is the best Batman I've ever seen. But it just further entrenched that blind corporate slave drone uh, from the Marvel side and the DC side, entrenching them even more. It didn't matter. Here's the here's the reality. Here's a fact. It didn't matter how good or bad that movie was going to be. There was a segment of the of the corporate zombie Marvel fanboys that were just going to say it sucked, no matter how good it was. And then then there were the blind corporate zombie, you know, DC fanboys who were just going to proclaim it as the greatest thing ever, no matter what, be, no matter how bad it was. And and that's just kind of it. And so I think. On top of the fact that well, you had Zack Snyder, and then Justice League was a whole other circus unto itself. But you had Zack Snyder himself make a movie that a bunch of people liked and a bunch of people didn't like. Nothing all that polarizing about it. Just, yeah, I like this movie. Oh, I didn't like that movie. Fine. Nothing particularly polarizing about it. But then you take that and you add in the blind zombie corporate drones fanboys on the Marvel side on the DC side and that's what really made it polarizing and then Zack Snyder was there in the middle as that polarizing figure Zack exasperated I think that polarization a little bit like over the years I think he exasperated a little bit but I still ultimately don't really think the whole polarization was really even his fault to be honest with you but again at the end of the day I don't even think it's it's really about um his uh, his style, whatever, look, it, it really comes down to this. The reason Zack Snyder is a divisive figure uh so harshly is really because of the DCEU, his approach to the DCEU. Because I still contend outside of the DCU, he's really not all that polarizing. And I think whenever he does eventually walk away from the DCU, which will probably be after the uh the Snyder cut miniseries happens on HBO, but when he does, I think he'll go back to being a generally speaking, a generally liked and appreciated director. Once he gets away from the baggage, a lot of which wasn't even his fault uh, of the, uh, of the DCU. just look, the bottom line is this. There's just a lot of people that don't like his DCEU, his take, I should say. There's just a lot of people that don't like his take on the DCEU. And the reason that's a problem more for movies like Man of Steel or Batman versus Superman than it was for, say, Sucker Punch, is cause most people didn't care about Sucker Punch. Like he could make Sucker Punch, and if it was great, yay. But if it sucked, oh well, it's Sucker Punch. Nobody none of nobody really cared about it. But people care about Batman and Superman and the Justice League and DC and this huge, you know juggernaut that comic book movies have become. And then, you know, again, completely unfair from Zack Snyder's point of view, but then you got Marvel that's like breaking all the records and having all this unbound success and the fans are loving it and the critics are loving it. And that just added the pressure to it. But again, I just think there's just a lot of people who did not appreciate his take on the DCEU. I am one of the people that do. A lot of people think I'm not, uh, but I am but I'm not going to be a slave about it. Not going to be, I'm not going to be like, you know, uh, tunnel visioned about it. I, I liked his movies, but it doesn't blind me to the fact that there are a lot of people who don't, and that's not going to change. That's not going to change. The public has had enough of a sample size of Zack Snyder's DNA when it comes to his sensibilities for DCEU universe, and they don't like it. Not all of them, obviously, at least half of them do, but a good chunk, minimum half of the movie going audience, probably a little bit more than half of the movie going audience, don't like his sensibilities when it comes to the DCU. They like a lot of his stuff outside of the DCU, but they just don't like his sensibilities with the DCU, and that's not going to change with this Snyder Cut. I think those of us who like his stuff already, like me, are going to like this Justice League miniseries on HBO Max in 2021, but I still think the majority of people won't because they already seen his sensibilities in the DCU and they don't like it. But again, that's all comes back down Christian to say, I don't think he's really that polarizing of a director. I just think it becomes a polarizing name, Zack Snyder, when it comes to the DCU stuff. And a lot of that isn't even his fault. So that's kind of my take on that. All right. That's a very long way of answering that, but thanks for asking Christian. All right, next up, we've got David Zuckerman who writes... Well, you finished your documentary. Yes, I have. What kind of return on, on investment are you looking for in order to fund your next project? Uh, just to break even? How close are you? And do you have your next project in mind? All right, thanks for writing. Well, obviously, I'm not going to talk about personal finances. I'm not. I'm not going to do that on here. This isn't. Uh, that's not appropriate. Uh, I will let you know that the launch of the film has exceeded my expectations. So that's been great. Um, Yeah, I've got something in mind about how big I think this needs to be in order for me to green light my next project. And I do have my next project in mind. I do. I've already got my next project in mind. It's not all finalized, but I have a general picture of what I want my next project to be. I already have been talking with another uh, filmmaker to partner with me in doing this next project that I'm very excited about. And uh, we've had some meetings about it and stuff like that. But again, I'm not willing to, I'm not, it's not that I'm not willing. I'm not ready to pull the trigger on that. Uh, I got to, I got to give it at least a couple of months to see how the movie does long-term because, you know, I, I just want to see what its overall health is. And on top of all that, Ann and I are moving like Ann and I just bought our first house. Again, the deal's not closed, should be soon, but we just want, this is a big deal. That's a big deal. We've been trying to find, we've been trying to buy a house for like a year and a half. We've been trying. And it's been very, very difficult for a couple of reasons. Uh, One of the big ones is that buying a house in and around LA is just ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. Like buying a house is the biggest financial investment you ever make in your life. And, you know, Ann and I would be looking around LA. And if you follow me on social media, you know I've put up some posts about this. Like a I live in a in a townhouse, okay? Ann and I live in a townhouse that we rent right now. And it's like 1400 square feet. You know, it's not huge. It's not big. It's all right. But we're looking I, trying to find a house around LA. We literally been finding like 900 square foot houses, two bedroom, one bath for like $875,000. Some of you right now are thinking, I'm joking. I'm not, I assure you. Like literally not even a thousand square foot house, two bedroom, one bath, 900 square feet, $875,000. And it's just like, for me, maybe it's my Canadian sensibilities, but it's like, If I'm going to spend that kind of money, first of all, who has that kind of money? But if I was going to spend that kind of money, I want a hell of a lot more house than that. So finally, after about a year and a bit, Ann and I just realized it's just hopeless. We're not going to find the house that we want for a price that we can afford in Los Angeles. We just can't. And so we both realized now with Ann working from home, And me working from home, we thought, you know what? We can expand our search, and we can look outside of LA. And so, once we did started looking out, even just like forty-five minutes to an hour outside of LA, oh my God, we were now finding houses that was twice the house for like two hundred thousand less than what you were getting in LA for half the house and two hundred thousand dollars more. You know what I mean? And then we came across this house that we absolutely love. And it all happened really quick. We found it on a Saturday. We had to know whether or not to make an offer by the end of Sunday. So we had like 36 hours to make a decision, put in our offer, went back and forth with the owner a little bit, and we struck a deal on Monday. Like it happened really fast. Now we're still in escrow right now and we still have things we got to do, but uh, it looks like this deal's going to close. So that's another thing. That's another thing that could get in the way and throw a little bit of wrench into the timing of the next project. But... Uh, we'll see. I'm hoping by the end of February, you know, by the end of February, Anne and I will be all moved into the new house if, you know, it all works out as planned, which it looks like it will. I'll be all set in my new studio in the new house. And we'll have a better picture of overall how the movie did. And probably by the end of February is when I'll be able to pull the trigger and kind of green light my own next project. So we will see. We will see how that goes. Thanks a lot for writing that in, though, man. All right. Next up. Tim Platt writes, I get surprised in movies and TV shows, but I never gasp. This week's Mandalorian episode had a name drop where I actually did it. Uh, Do you have any moments recently that made you audibly gasp? Um, I don't know that I audibly gasped. I can't remember if I audibly gasped when they name dropped. By the way, we're now, what, two and a half days removed since the Mandalorian came out. You all know what the name was. The name was Grand Admiral Thrawn. That was the name drop. I was certainly surprised. I don't know. I can't remember if I gasped, though. Anyway, but I did gasp three weeks earlier, and I believe it was episode two of season two of The Mandalorian when Baby Yoda ate that lady's egg. I audibly gasped out loud. I'm like, what is he doing? Like, I couldn't believe it. I just about freaked out. And it was a great reminder to us. Like Baby Yoda is adorable and cute, but he's also a—he's a baby. You know, he's just—he he's, doesn't have a complete moral compass. He's a baby. He sees something. He's like, "Oh, that looks delicious," and he's going to eat it. He's not thinking about, "Oh, the poor frog mother who has vested all of her energy in the last." potential offspring for her and her husband. Like that's not the thought process that goes through a baby's mind. He says, Ooh, that looks yummy. I want to put that in my mouth. (laughs) That's what she said. I want to put that in my mouth. And there, there he goes. Right. But Oh my gosh, I, I audibly, audibly gasped completely out loud when that happened. 100%. All right. Next up Kyle Garrett writes, when you give tips to prospective YouTuber uh, YouTube content creators uh, who want to get started, you often emphasize the importance of watching yourself after every show, creating content in a predictable, consistent schedule, getting a good microphone, and being yourself. What element would you say is underappreciated for making a good YouTube show that a lot of people get wrong? Thanks. All right. Thanks a lot for writing that in, Kyle. And yeah, I, I do a lot of consulting for you know, people who want to get things, even companies who want to get YouTube channels going and or podcasts or blogs or what have you. Uh, and I've done, you know, I've done panels on it, I've done seminars on it and stuff like that. What I would say is probably the biggest mistake that I see a lot of people make is inconsistency. Now, what I I what I'm not talking about is how regularly you do your show. doing Having a regular consistent schedule is important, but when I say inconsistency, I'm not talking about how often you put out your videos. That's not what I'm talking about at all. While this is not a 100% hard fast rule for everybody because there are clearly YouTube channels that are exceptions to this rule, I find a general truth about it is this. Too many people don't even know, too many people who want to launch a YouTube channel don't even know what it is their YouTube channel is or what they even want their YouTube channel to be about. Now, I'll tell you straight up, I've got a friend of mine who has tried several times over the last six, seven years to you know get themselves a YouTube channel up and running, but he always gets started, but he never really knows really what to show it. And therefore, there's no consistency to what what their videos are. Too many people try to make their YouTube channel about too many things. To me, part of a key of making a successful and really getting going as a YouTube channel is having a clear idea of what is my channel all about? What is the identity of my channel? If you are a YouTube channel that wants to talk professional wrestling, for example then don't make videos about um, your favorite cars. Don't make videos about what's going on in the English Premier Soccer League. Don't make videos about, I mean, it's it's kind of fine once in a while to do little deviations, but be very clear about the identity and what it is your channel is all about. Because if people don't know what they're going to get when they come to your channel, why would they come back to your channel? if people don't know what they're going to get when they come to your channel, why would they hit subscribe? I find the people, and again, this is not a 100% hard and fast rule, but this is generally true. The people that really get a good foundation to launch from are people that have a clear identity of what their, their YouTube channel is. Do Is my YouTube channel a straight-up personal vlog channel? Fine. if they Because that way, at least people know... Eddie is going to talk about his life today, right? So they at least know that's what they're going to get if they come to Eddie's channel. If they, if you're doing a, you know, a YouTube channel about uh, lighting, great then people know hey if i if, if i want to find out about all the stuff that's going on in the world of lighting and believe me there is a lot of stuff that goes on in the world of lighting they know if i go to janet's website she's going to be talking about all the stuff going on in the world of lighting and all things going on i don't have to worry that if i go to janet's website and go to her youtube channel she's going to be talking today about you know the latest pants she bought she's not going to be talking about you know the latest way she figure out how to fix the plumbing in her bathroom They know we go to Janet's YouTube channel for lighting and Janet may throw in a couple of little things here and there, but generally speaking, her video is going to be about lighting. We know to come to that and then consistency in how you do things. Now, I don't in my channel here, I don't talk very much about um, Collider and and the fall of Collider after I left. But I will tell you one thing, and I did tell them this, and they completely ignored my advice. They completely ignored my advice. But after I left, they, they still did movie talk, but every day they had a different panel. Some of the same people, but they had this every single day, was this constant rotation of people. And it was to the point that viewers don't know who they're going to even get talking to them when they tune into movie talk that day. And what I tried to explain to them after I left, when I saw them doing this, and I met with the leadership there, I said, look, when people tune into shows like these, it's as much personality driven as it is the content style. You're still talking about the movie news every day, but they don't even know who they're going to get. They don't even know which people are going to be talking to us that day. I so told them that is going to be a turnoff to the audience, maybe even subconsciously, but gradually they're just going to stop tuning in because if they like tuning in to listen to guy A and girl B and guy C, and they don't even know, hey, if I tune on Wednesday, I don't even know if any of those three are going to be there, then they're going to just subconsciously stop tuning in eventually. It's completely inconsistent. And they ignored me. They just, they get, oh yeah, pat pat me on the head. Oh, thanks for the advice, John. Don't worry. We've got it from here. We're good. And the numbers just continued in this landslide of a free fall after I left. Not just, not because I left, but because they just started doing things wrong. And that's really unfortunate. So yeah, what do I see as the biggest mistake? Inconsistency. Not in posting schedule, but in the identity and the content that you're doing and who's doing it. Don't have don't put out five videos in two weeks and have every video hosted by a different person and have four different topics that are being like four different completely things today we're going to talk about the best beaches in california and then the next one you're talking about today we're talking about the five best motorcycles you can buy i mean like be consistent or else why would people tune into your channel so that's that's kind of my take on that kyle thanks for asking. All right, next up, we got Saberwolf, who writes, hey, John, hope you're having an awesome day. I am, thank you. Question, how strong was Mace Windu? I mean, he took on the Emperor, plus that purple lightsaber is so badass. Would you say he's in the top tier amongst Jedi masters? Well, I mean, I don't know. First of all, color of a lightsaber to me does not make a lightsaber badass, but that's just me. But how truly strong was he? I mean, that's up for debate. But the one thing that we can glean is this. He's on the Jedi Council, so clearly he is a very, very well-versed, deeply in tune with the Force Jedi, for sure. Number two, if he was not the leader of the Council, which he did seem to be, he was at least kind of second most respected to, to Yoda. He might have even have been the most respected. Remember, when they went to go get and arrest Palpatine, all the other Jedi, Jedi Mas- the members of the Jedi Council... We're kind of falling in line behind him. Um, now, he did very well against the Emperor, but the question is how much of that fight was the Emperor just toying with him, waiting for Anakin to show up so he could then make his move, get Anakin to face that that pivotal decision-making moment and manipulate Anakin into siding with the Emperor? I, I mean, I simply don't know. Did Mace literally and on his own legitimately get the upper hand on the Emperor? Or was that just the Emperor playing with him? I don't know. But... At least extrapolating from the things we do know, senior, senior member on the Jedi Council led the way of the other Jedi Council members uh, to go and arrest Palpatine, at least and obviously very close friend and respected by Master Yoda. I think all that would have to lead us to believe, well, this must be truly one of the more powerful Jedi Masters in the universe. So that's probably where I would leave that things off there, Saber. All right, next up, Manny Garcia writes. It's been said already, but Dave Filoni's growth in directing definitely showed in the latest episode. I agree. By the way, have you noticed Grogu keeps saying, saying says keeps saying Batu or something similar in the past few episodes? Any idea what that means? He says it when they go look for Ahsoka. Uh, it doesn't sound like regular baby jargon. I think it was just regular baby jargon, uh, honestly. Manny, I think you might be reading into it a little bit too much. I really don't think that means anything. Now watch the next episode of Mandalorian. He's going to say Batu, and it totally means something. But honestly. I don't think he's saying any word. I I honestly think it's just baby babble. I don't, I honestly don't think he's saying anything again. Let's find out. Maybe he is, but for now I got to say, I don't think he's saying anything there. All right. Next up comes to us from Andre Mara, who writes, Hey, John, in the prime days of Collider Movie Talk, you and others did a top five comic book movies from 2014 to 2016. Without directly asking you to do a top five again, what has been the most striking comic book movie since 2017? Thanks for all you do. All right, thanks a lot for that. So when you say since 2017, I'm going to make the assumption you mean including 2017. Like, Because sometimes when you say since this time, you mean after, everything that happens after that. However, since we're talking about you specifically called out us doing some kind of list from the 2014 to 2016, I'm going to assume you want me to include films that came out in 2017. Because that's important. Whether or not we're counting 2017 or not is vital, vital, vital to this. So I'm going to go on the assumption that you mean to include 2017. All right. To me the two best comic book movies including 2017 and forward might surprise you what i'll say but the two that i would say are the most striking comic book movies neither of them are avengers movies that incl- i don't i'm including uh, infinity war and endgame i don't think infinity war or endgame are amongst the two most striking best comic book movies from 2017 to today. I love those movies. I love Infinity War and I love Endgame, but they're not in my top. Those wouldn't be my the two pick films I would pick. The two films I would pick as the most striking and more important and ultimately best comic book movies from 2017 to today are number one, Logan. I mean, Logan is a top three best comic book movie of all time to me. Logan is a game-changing kind of comic book movie It is a truly genre-bending comic book movie Because it is as western as it is sci-fi action comic book-y It is just one of the most dominant, almost perfect comic book movie ever made It's just, that's how good it is That's how important it was It just is a, just, oh, so good So good so to me, easily, the best comic book movie we've had from 2017 forward is Logan. The other one may surprise you, but if you've listened to me for any period of time, it really shouldn't surprise you all that much. And I really do believe this. I think the other comic book movie that is better than Black Panther, that is better than Infinity War, that is better than Endgame, that is better than the Shazam. You know how much I love Shazam. I love Shazam. Is Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse? Yeah. Yeah. A movie that for over a year I said, this is a dumb idea. Come on, Sony. Really? Doing an animated feature film with Miles Morales? Really? Dumb. I went on for a year saying how I thought it was a stupid idea. And then the first trailer came out and I wasn't feeling it. I, I, I didn't like the trailer. At least not the first one or two. I didn't like the animation style. At least from the trailer, I didn't like the animation style. All that kind of stuff. Now, I was starting to warm up to it a bit. But before in the last couple of weeks leading up to its release, I was starting to warm up to the movie a little bit, but I was not prepared for how truly outstanding that movie was. I was not prepared for that, even though I had started to warm up a bit. That movie, it, you know, you Robert Meyer Burnett on the John Campbell show always talks about it starts with story, it follows up with great character, and then everything else is secondary. Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse starts with story. It follows up with character and then everything else is great too. But I fell in love with the Miles Morales character. I loved the Peter Parker in that movie. Like one of my favorite Peter Parkers ever is from that movie. Um, The story was fantastic. The character dynamics were wonderful. The integration of the various dimension of Spider-Man Was great from Noir to Spider Ham to Penny, and you know all of them. It's just a magnificent, outstanding movie. And uh, I would say from 2017 to today, the two most striking comic book movies to me are Logan by a mile, and then Spider Man into the Spider Verse. All right, next up we've got Darren Barnes writes. Hey, John. I hope you're all keeping well. We are. Thank you, Darren. I am super excited for any prospect of something new in regards to the last starfighter with the success of the Mandalorian and how the story unfolds each week would this work for beloved for this beloved story. I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, Yeah. Last starfighter is a movie. There's a very, very short list. When people ask me movies, I would like to see sequels to or reboots of there's a very, very short list. Uh, The sequel one I always want to see is a Mystery Men sequel. Even now, 20-plus years later, I want a Mystery Men sequel. That first Mystery Men movie came out way before its time. But one that I've always wanted to see a reboot of, particularly the last 10-plus years, has been The Last Starfighter. But The Last Starfighter works best as a movie. I really do. I think it absolutely 1,000% works best as a movie. The little episodic... Uh, Adventure of the week, um, the the journey is the story kind of thing works perfectly for Mandalorian, and it's great, and I, I appreciate a Mandalorian the way they do that very very much. But that's not what would work best for Last Starfighter. I don't believe. I think the Last Starfighter would absolutely work much better as a feature film. One thousand percent, one thousand percent. That's how I feel about that. All right, thanks for writing that, Darren. Next up, uh, Sue Cab Lee Kim writes. Hey, John, longtime watcher. Thank you so much. New Patreon supporter and first-time questioner. Well, I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad you were able to get a question in, man. So I thought I would swing for the fences. Is there any way we can have a holiday special John Campia show with Robert Aaron and Chris who knows? Maybe guest appearances from the A Team, Ashley and Anne with no E. Uh, what a way to end 2020. Uh, that that show and what a kickoff to 2021. Uh, well, that's a nifty idea. I I'll gonna be honest with you. I'm not gonna lie. I'm gonna be honest with you. The likelihood of that is very unlikely. It's very unlikely. Um, mainly because I right now I'm not gonna have people from one, two, three, four. Five different households all gather it together in a house right now. That's just that would be irresponsible and foolish given the pandemic situation. So there's that not to mention as we get into the holiday season, things get very busy for people. And so that whole thing is probably unlikely. It it is probably very unlikely that that will happen, but don't worry. Rob and I will have some, some good content and Aaron uh, in here once in a while too. We will have some good content coming and hopefully in 2021, once we get back to a little bit of a sense of normalcy, maybe something like that can become a possibility once we get into March, April and May and stuff like that. So it would be fun. It would be fun. All right. Last question of the day comes us from Alexander Kent, who writes, Hey, John, spoiler warning. Really enjoyed Mandalorian this week. Do you think Grogu, Baby Yoda, could have witnessed the massacre of younglings by Anakin when he was at the Jedi Temple? I think that may be the reason for his memory. Thanks. Oh, it's totally possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because look, they, they said in the newest episode that Baby Yoda was at the temple when the purge was happening. So he probably witnessed a lot of his little friends being murdered whether it was by Anakin or stormtroopers or whatever, who knows i'm sure anakin didn't cover every square inch of the uh of the jedi temple himself and murder all of them there was there were battalions of stormtroopers flooding in there so whether it was he saw anakin murdering them or just his friends getting murdered by stormtroopers yeah there's they didn't say it explicitly but i think there's a very very good chance that's what happened and maybe that's just a mental block that formed this defensive mental block that he's forming he just blocks it out Or a Jedi master got him out and planted some kind of mental block in him. I don't know. But I think the likelihood of him having witnessed some atrocities is probably pretty high. And that will probably come into play at some point in the story as well. Good question, Alexander. All right, guys, that'll do it. For this installment of Open Mic, again, a special shout out and thank you to our Patreon supporters for sending in all these great questions, giving us fun things to talk about. I appreciate you guys, and I appreciate that you guys are even Patreon supporters in the first place. You guys are the underpinning that makes this whole channel go, so thank you guys very, very much for that. If you're somebody listening to this podcast and you're not a Patreon supporter, and you're interested in becoming a Patreon supporter, plug, 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 uh, thank you so much for even considering it. Uh, You can just go to patreon.com slash John and uh, get some information there and you can sign up and become a Patreon as well. Anyway, guys, that will do it for me for now. Don't forget to join us on Monday for the next episode of the John Campia show on our YouTube channel. That'll do it for me. Thanks a lot for being here. My name's John Campia and until next time, my friends, bye-bye.